0: Research from George Gallup and uh, Jim Costelli have discovered a significant problem. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates, they say. Well, how bad is it? They went on and discovered that fewer than half of adults in America can name the four gospels. Many Christians can't identify two or three of the disciples even. According to data from Barna Research Group, 60% of Americans can't name even five of the uh, Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. Barna also discovered that at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Now, that sounds extreme, and it probably is. But another survey of graduating high school seniors in America revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. (laughs) Again, that sounds facetious, but that's where we're at. Well, welcome to Calvary Conversations. I'm Mike Dodds, the host for today's conversation about why we don't study the Bible today, and we need to, and specifically why we should be studying the Old Testament. I've got here as my guest, Joel Williamson, our esteemed professor of Hebrew and Old Testament studies here at Calvary. Welcome to the conversation, Prof.
1: Pleasure to be with you today.
0: Yeah, I think I'm safe in saying that uh, Anyone who's been around Calvary for uh, the last few years would be familiar with your face because you've uh, got seniority amongst the faculty.
1: Should we say it that way? I'm (laughs) old. Let's just be. (laughs) No, no, no,
0: no, no. I started here in
1: 83. So, yeah, I've been here a while.
0: That's right. So those that aren't familiar with us, yeah, you started back in 83. And over those years, as I've heard you talk about it, you've taught a lot of courses here probably all the bible and theology classes here and some in other disciplines too
1: yeah uh when i came they made us start by it was kind of a, a rite of passage it's not legal anymore thanks to the fact that we're accredited but the, i had to teach english comp
0: uh-huh.
1: and then i had to, and i also taught uh when i actually really love uh west history of western civilization again i'm not academically qualified for that one now, but I really enjoyed teaching that for several years. But mostly I taught Bible classes, theology classes. Um, I teach the introduction to philosophy class uh, Mm -hmm. on campus still. So
0: you it keeps me busy. Well, we're we're glad you're engaged and we're gonna pick your brain a little bit. Um, I want you to help us think rightly about Bible study and specifically Old Testament. So let's start with a question here. Why do people tend to neglect studying the Old Testament? What's your opinion? I know it's your opinion. You haven't done any studies on it, maybe, or have you?
1: Well, I haven't done uh, that kind of study on it, but my observation and experience tells me it is a major problem. In our first, there are a couple of issues as I see it. The first one, of course, is our society in general has become disconnected from the Bible. I mean, you mentioned some examples, one I bring up in my Introduction to or by uh, developing a biblical worldview class is watching two Ph.D.s and a man with two master's degrees on Jeopardy get a get the Bible question. Uh, she was Abraham's wife, and their and their answer. The two of them refused to answer, and the one that offered an answer was Jezebel. <laughs> and I'm going. So we have some of the best educated people in America who have no clue of some of the most basic biblical truths. Mm. Then we add to that the second problem, which is, and this is something the church has wrestled with really throughout its history the idea that we're so preoccupied and appropriately with the New Testament and the work of Christ. There's a tendency to treat the Old Testament as kind of expired scripture. Well, that was good for then, but now we have the new and improved. I mean, as Americans, we all know new means it's better. And Mm -hmm. so we don't have Mm -hmm. to look at the Old Testament anymore. And both of those uh, mindsets are disastrous. Uh, Mm -hmm. You got it, too. We got a notice today to read up on AI. And the article starts off by Mm -hmm. saying it's absolutely essential for people today to understand artificial intelligence. And they enlisted, I said, everything you said there should be said about Bible knowledge. And especially, and I say, because I'm the Old Testament guy, Old Testament knowledge.
0: Yeah. Well, why do we neglect the, why should we read, let's, let's turn the question around. Why should we okay. be involved in study with the Old Testament? I mean, yes, the narrative passages, because we, we we see history, the history of Israel, Um, And maybe the character studies, you know, we study David and Solomon and Daniel and all the rest. But what about the law? Well, there are parts of the Old Testament we tend to avoid. Do we need to study it all?
1: Yeah. uh, The Old Testament, let's start with just a little statistical point. You ignore the Old Testament. You basically might as well cut out and throw away two thirds of your Bible. Because that's how much of it it is, and, and we say, oh, it's all the word of God. It's wonderful, but it's not for me. And the answer is, yes, it is. The New Testament is constantly quoting and alluding to the Old Testament. I, I am so sick and tired of hearing things like it says um, um, in they'll you know, say Paul says we should uh, uh, love our enemies or something, and the answer is no. That's from the law of Moses. Mm-hmm. That's not you know that wasn't just what Jesus said or what Paul said. That's what. God said back in Ch- in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Actually, that would be uh, in uh, Numbers, but I mean, uh, yeah, Numbers. But the point is uh, that we we don't know our Bibles well enough, and so we don't realize that we're missing out on the very foundation. The New Testament was written with the assumption that people already knew and understood and read the Old right. Testament, right? And were familiar with it, and so. Uh, And for the most part, it was reliably true at that time. Now, the church then went into a period when it didn't know the Old Mm -hmm. Testament because they didn't, uh, because they, uh, it's strange, uh, it became, we became less literate as uh, the Western society became less literate during the Middle Ages. And all we got was whatever was read in the weekly, in Latin, and unless and only the educated got to know Latin, and it was, and even the Latin translation had its flaws. So there was a a, a loss. Come the Reformation, that all changed. But now we have the scriptures in in English. We have so many translations that it, it you, your big problem in buying a Bible is figuring out which translation you want to use. It's not can mm-hmm. I find an, a translation in my language, but uh, when we study the Old Testament, getting back to your original question, sorry, I rant on these things. I, this is really bugs me. But getting back to your original question, what we lose, I've already said a background information and a perspective, but the law, the law of Moses, first of all, by not reading it, we end up misunderstanding it. We say, I know what the law is about. I've read Paul, what Paul says in Galatians and what Paul says in Romans, and Paul said that talking about the legalistic application of the law that existed in his day, largely through the Pharisees, although the Sadducees did it too in a different way, but they were not particularly relevant to the church in this, in his time. But And so it's like, oh, the law is about doing. You do it and you get and earn it from God. And the answer is that never was what the law was about. It's interesting in Exodus, the Jews are taken out of... Egypt, of course, they receive the law at Mount Sinai, chapter 20 and following. They then go and get moving on up to uh, to numbers. They go up to go into the land and they uh, and they refuse to go in because they are afraid. And uh, and then when they and the Lord rebukes them and says they have to spend 40 years or another 38 years in the wilderness. And we come to Deuteronomy. They're getting ready to go up. And what is it, what does Moses say? He says, "You are you generation died, that generation died in the wilderness. Why? Because you did not believe the Lord. It wasn't because they didn't obey the Lord, is they didn't believe the Lord. The Old Testament law is all about faith. Doing the Ten Commandments is an expression of faith in the Lord. we live in a world right now, Our culture is a beautiful example. where're bad things are people do bad things and violate the, the teachings of the law all the time. And they say, it just doesn't seem necessary to me to live that way. Or I don't see that that makes any sense. Or it, it just doesn't seem right to me. And the answer is, okay, you you choose to decide, you get to make up your own rules.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What you're saying is, I don't believe God. Mm-hmm. I don't trust the Lord to tell me the best way to live. I get, I get my own imagination is more reliable than God's revelation. Now, if once I have the look at the law and I start seeing it, then yeah, there are a lot of the commandments which deal with issues that are moot, and the specifics are moot. Such things as sacrifices, uh, uh, keeping kosher. If you're from a, the church's point of view, I don't have to worry about the meats. I have acts to assure me that that's gone. But the point is. The principle isn't lost. I have a holy God in the book of Leviticus, where all these rules are set about holy living. Over and over again, you should be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. I have a holy God. And the Old Testament ne- points out that a holy God is not to be messed with. And the fact that we that he's a gracious and loving God, which is also found in the Old Testament, but most dramatically demonstrated at the cross, does not give us carte blanche to to live in violation of his will anyway i'll (laughs) rant yeah (laughs) yeah
0: you you did step into some of the things the questions we've had you know the dietary laws the clothing the you know sabbath keeping uh is that still profitable for us those laws
1: let's start off something real basic uh, there are evangel- there are well, there are evangelicals, but I'm thinking specifically of dispensationalists. I am a dispensationalist, traditional dispensationalist. And we say the law has been done away with as law. It is still God's revelation and still is important to us, mm-hmm. but it is not the law for the church, which means in, I am not required to live according to those holy standards. Uh, keeping the Sabbath is a very good example of that. Uh, we come to the New Testament, there's no renewing of that command. I, I'm not still not allowed to murder people, mm. you know, not allowed to have other gods, but that's not because of the law. That's because of the nature of God. Mm. But here's the point. Uh, there's no sin involved in doing that. If you feel that it's important to you, I mean, I have Romans 14 here. If you feel that it would be wrong for you to not worship on the sun on, on Saturday or to, to do work on Saturday. Or if you insist on Sunday, which is not the Sabbath technically, but if you believe that and you practice it, that's fine. It's not required, but it is not wrong. And I and I mention this because I've run in, in my weird life. I've run into some very strange people. Um, At one point, I... Went to a Bible conference and the speaker uh, was at a church and he was uh, he was a pastor of a church, and uh, he was dead set against legalism, and he taught his church we're not legal, we're we're not going to be legalistic in this church. It's wrong to live by the to live legalistically, and so I was staying with somebody there and and some friends came over just before we went to Bible class and they brought a bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. I never drank. I never have drunk. Really, it's not even so much a, a spiritual matter. as I just chose early. I was told by somebody it affects your brain, and I'm egotistical enough that I don't like my brain monkeyed with, so I I didn't drink. So they said, would you like some wine? I said, no, thanks, I don't drink. And the whole room froze, and they looked at me and said. And one of the women there goes, "You're going to have to learn, because we don't have legal. We won't allow legalism in our church." And I'm going, and I'm thinking. Hmm. But I was smart enough to keep my mouth shut. But I'm thinking, <laughs> if I have to drink, isn't that legalism? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's like that. But it's that crazy idea that we I, they think they're rejecting the law, but they're actually just becoming bizarre. Whereas if we have the scriptures, the scriptures give us balance because the scriptures are giving us the mind of God. And our God is not narrow and uh, legalistic. Yeah. But he is absolute and righteous, as well as holy and just and loving and gracious. And if we we can't get that balance unless we see it all.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Christ says there in Matthew, he said he came to fulfill all the law. But yet you mentioned, you know, we're dispensationalists. So we look in the New Testament, we're not under mm-hmm. law. Now, I'm going to use mm-hmm. some air quotes there because we have to clearly understand what he's saying there. So. I'm I'm with you. Most of us, I'd say, most of us, because there are some that say Christians that say we're still under the law. But I I'm I'm with you that we're not under the ceremonial law. You know, Christ fulfilled uh, the sacrificial law. We're not under the ceremonial law in part because we're not under the theocracy of the Old Testament. But we're exactly. definitely under the moral law, and there's where the Ten Commandments come in. You know, at the Sabbath. Keeping you mentioned, you know that's their their ceremonial practice. We still honor a Sabbath principle. I'd say myself. Hey, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, but there 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 are some discussions about the Old Testament, and one of those is relative to a uh, the concept of replacement theology. Yeah. Uh, does that does that factor into some of the neglect or misunderstanding, at least, of the Old Testament? What is that? Help our audience well, I, to understand.
1: Yeah. I mean, the church, as I said, from the early on, they had a problem, which is they were absolutely committed to Jesus Christ and the gospel. And they had to figure out what to do with the Old Testament. And so mm-hmm. the solution originally was well, everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus. We just have to figure out a way to make it seem that way. <laughs> so they, they came up with some very creative interpretive mm-hmm. approaches, which involved changing the message of the Old Testament to make it fit what they believed it should be saying. Mm-hmm. instead of letting figuring out how to reconcile what it did say with what the New Testament did say. And so uh, the as time went on, the theology had to be worked out. And, and they have what's called covenant theology, which tried to come up with a nice systematic way to solve this problem, explaining the relationship of the Old Testament and New Testament. And I won't go into all about it, but part of that is what they call replacement theology, which is all. Oh, when the Old Testament says Israel, the New Testament believers should read church mm-hmm. and that the church, believers in our, in our dispensation, using our terminology here, are the new Israel. And so, and that, that would sound like the perfect solution because we are God's people just as Israel was and is God's people. As a dispensationalist, I see there's a lot of promises given to Israel, which are is wait fulfillment, which, which God has not yet performed because of Israel's rejection. And God tells us clearly in scriptures that they will. there will come a day when they will be fulfilled. So we're looking forward to restoration of Israel. So we see a difference. And I think the Old Testament sees a difference, and the New Testament sees a difference between church and Israel. But Would like I say be simplified, simple it would seem simple to say, oh, the church is Israel, Israel Israel's the church. Or maybe I should say the Old Testament Jews were the Old Testament church, the modern church is the New Testament Israel. That's how they kind of talk about it. Mm -hmm. What that where the problem arises, yeah, goodness doing that, is you end up with um, how do I want to word it, with well, ultimately, you have to what God promises to Israel, for example, is Abraham was a land, a promised land. And they say, oh, well, for Abraham, the promised land was a piece of geography defined in Revelation. I mean, in uh, in Genesis as well as later in the law as a strip of land, roughly in, uh, in what's called the Levant or in, in modern uh, Israel and Syria and uh Israel, Syria, and Lebanon, and you go. That was what God promised Israel, and then they have to say, "Well, with the Lord, but we see now that means when it says the Lord promised the land to His people, He meant the church, and hmm. the church is land. Our land is heaven. So you say, well, it meant one thing in the Old Testament, means another thing now, and they say, well." Well, yeah, but, and the answer is ah, so now the Bible text has to be reinterpreted, the Old Testament has to be reinterpreted in the light mm-hmm. of the new. And it, what we basically say is for centuries, for millennia, actually, mm-hmm. millennium and a half at least, Israel was told stuff and led to believe stuff that wasn't true. They weren't going to get the land. And the land wasn't really what was promised. And to say, well, he really meant it, but do you have to say, well, then, or God went back and said, oh, well, Israel rejected, so they don't get the land. And the answer is, ah, so God says, I unconditionally give you the land no matter what. And then he says, except now you've messed up, so I'm taking it back. Ah, God's promise is no longer reliable. I've got salvation no matter what. Wait a minute. If I take the that view that the, the God's word can be changed, how do I know that his promise is reliable? Yeah,
0: yeah. Ginny uh, and I last night, my wife and I were, yeah. you know, we're reading through the Bible. We do that every other year. And so we're in Jeremiah right now. Mm-hmm. And just last night we read, oh, what is it, Jeremiah 31? Uh, where oh, okay. where uh, God says to Jeremiah, he says, if you can change the uh Sun and moon, and this, he didn't say seasons there, that's said in Genesis. But if you can change how the, the, the universe operates, well, then I'll neglect, I'll, I'll get rid of my people, Israel. And the implication is, since that won't change, Israel is still my people. So, what, we're, what you're talking about, Joel, is an interpretation question that yeah. as we approach the Old Testament, we have to be consistent. That's what we say here at Calvary. That's absolutely
1: right. And that's why you need to. to that, that's the benefit of taking a consistent. Now, there's a. I should take it back. The benefit is you end up with a consistent interp- of a consistent interpretation. Is we're letting the text tell us what it means. Yeah. That what yeah. you know the text is. We're looking for the author's meaning, what he intended when he wrote it. Moses, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we don't believe there are two different meanings. God meant one thing, but Moses meant another. In which case, we are again at the place where we can start making up our own idea. And and, and let's face it, there have been some very strange cults that begin there. You know, Mm -hmm. it seems to me, the Bible says, and what it really means is, and and you say, well, it doesn't fit the context, doesn't matter, it doesn't have to, it means this because God revealed it to me. And it's like, ah, new meaning. And we don't have a stable basis. On the Mm -hmm. other hand, okay, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm just agreeing. Okay. lady, Go ahead. On the other hand, once we have this, sta- we have a stable basis. Th- there's a there's a problem with this, which is, it's hard work. It turns out our God, while he is very clear about what he reveals, number one, he doesn't reveal everything we want to know. Uh, mm-hmm. Anybody who's ever said, "I'm going to find out what the Bible has to say about," AI, for example, artificial intelligence says, Yeah, there's nothing about in the Bible about artificial intelligence. The answer is, Ah, there are principles. And you go, Where? And that's the point. You have to really, God doesn't tell us everything. Second thing that's really difficult about a consistent approach, especially to the Old Testament, is what we, the reason we call ourselves dispensationalists is because we understand that over time, God has been developing his plan in phases, in Mm -hmm. stages. And so we what we call different dispensations, different mm. authorities, different uh, uh, administrations. And we are in a different dis- administration than Old Testament. So we have to say, OK, the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament are for Israel. And while I can use that to guide me in understanding I have a God whose promise can be trusted, I can't turn around and say every promise that God gave to Israel applies to me uh and so we have to use judgment here It's one of the reasons you come to bible college and get a <laughs> or get come to a, uh, calvary university let's be say and get a good course in hermeneutics and understand, hermeneutics is the principle is the uh theory approach of interpretation learn how to make these interpretive decisions and figure out what's really going on and it's again letting the text guide us and then rec- and then correlating what the Bible says. Mm. Um, now, sometimes the the Bible is a bit confusing. in In chapter twelve of Daniel, Daniel uh, is confused at the end. Mm. Uh, uh the Lord has given Daniel has some of the most clear revelation of the future, prediction of the future. I mean, he he traces the history of of uh, of the of Palestine and and of uh, the uh, Greek, greco macedonian Empire, uh, mm-hmm. generation after generation after generation as it affects the Jews very clearly, so clearly that a lot of modernists want to argue that he wasn't, it wasn't a prediction, and he predicts Christ very clearly, and he lays out these things, and it gets all to the end, and Daniel says, okay, so this is how it's all going to end, and explain, and, and the Lord says, no, just seal it up, Daniel. And that, I think, is the point. There are some things which the Lord has revealed, which won't really, uh, especially about the, the future that is still awaiting, which will only become clear when they're fulfilled. And you'll say, oh, that's what the Lord meant. That's exactly what happened when Jesus came. The Jews, one of the problems they had is they had a very clear idea that they had laid out of how the Messiah would be. He would come, he would lead a military attack, he would drive the Romans out. And he wasn't that way at all. But he was perfectly in keeping with what the Old Testament predictions of him were. the idea and they go and they they didn't like the Messiah that they were getting, so they mm. uh, they rejected him. And that's the but the point is they couldn't uh, explain, I mean, things like in isaiah fifty three, the last three verses, Messiah has dies. And then after he's dead, he 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 has children and he takes charge and he rules. And it's like, how can that be? And then when we come, we say, ah, resurrection. It wasn't clearly revealed in the Old Testament. But resurrection is the only way that the Old Testament texts makes sense. Oh, so we have to live with the fact that we will never have all the answers that we might be curious about but we will have everything God wants us to know yeah. if we'll let the Bible speak to us.
0: Yeah, you make, you make a good point. I think that back uh, comments you made back, if we reinterpret the Old Testament to mean the church instead of saying Israel. Right. Um, and, and see it in, in those promises and in that light into that group of people, then we're going to misunderstand the new uh, you just mentioned prophecy. If we don't study mm-hmm. the Old Testament correctly, we're going to probably get prophecy wrong. But you just mm-hmm. touched on a very fundamental one. If we don't understand the Old Testament, we don't get Christ right. The Jews didn't.
1: Right. No, I think that's a, that's absolutely correct. And uh, I think we also miss one other thing, which I, I probably should have mentioned earlier, but it didn't come to me till just now. And that is, we miss the big picture.
0: Uh, you know, yeah. it's
1: very, uh, I used to, I, 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 for a while, brief time, I, I we had a fellow who left and I took over teaching a course called Dispensational Premillennialism. And I, and I would walk all the way through the whole Bible. And I remember being somewhat struck by how the whole Bible is making one story and it doesn't mm-hmm. end at the cross. That's where we say, oh no, it all comes to the cross. There's no question the cross of Jesus Christ is the most crucial thing in all of history. But it isn't the end of the story. There's more afterwards. First of all, we're two thousand years after the cross. I'm pretty sure God isn't finished yet, or if He is, He something doesn't make sense because we're still around. And the Old Testament tells us there's more to come. Israel has to be re, has to be restored to the land, which they, to some degree at least, have been. Uh, and and then there's some other. Prophecies, Revelation, as well as Daniel and some of the and and, uh, other Old Testament prophets make clear some things that are still yet to be done. But ultimately, the end is yet to come. And it is. uh, When we put the whole story together, we see it and it's very easy to see in Genesis one. The world begins in darkness and covered uh, with water. And then God creates light, and He divides the light into two with the, from the darkness. Then He He separates the water twice, and so we have air, and we have atmosphere, and we have land and sea. And then we go to the Revelation chapter 21, and we find what in the new in the new heavens and the new earth. There's no night. There's no sea. And you go. It's like we start with all light, darkness, Mm. and water. We end up with some darkness and some water, and we go to some darkness and some water, and ultimately get to no darkness, no water. Oh, it's like there's a program being played out here, and everything finally gets to where it ultimately needs to be. Mm. And in every phase throughout the history of the world, all the way to the very end of time, mankind fails we we have perfect environment in the uh, in the garden and uh, we eat the fruit i say we because i wasn't there but i would have i'm afraid i'm sorry i'm a human being and i'm stupid but and then we travel on through history and in each uh, days of noah we have the mankind's gotten so bad the lord has to destroy them so that he can and start over basically recreate mm-hmm puts the world underwater again, back like in Genesis one. Then he moves, we move on, and he he sets after the tower of Babel. He sets the world aside, and he moves to using one man and his descendants, Abraham. And yet they fail. And they end up uh, being taken into captivity and and we come to the New Testament, and they fail again. They reject their Messiah. And God starts working with the church, creates something new called the church, unique in history. And, ah, everything is wonderful. But after we come to the end of the church age, what do we have? We have the most rebellious time in the history of the world, what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. But then Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom. And now we have perfect environment and perfect justice and everything is wonderful. And how does it end? Mankind rises up and tries to rebel against him it turns out that the great one of the great lessons of history is that human beings will never ever be worth anything except by the grace of God only those who rely trust in the lord and obey him that song got it right trust and obey are going to succeed that's the so that but we don't see that big picture once i say it's all about me and my church or the hmm. church we don't we then we we miss it. We also miss out the how important God is to it all. Human beings throughout history, even the great heroes of faith, ultimately are only great in proportion to uh as the Lord uses them. The real hero of history is God. In yeah. every phase and every stage, it's the same thing's true in our lives. If we've ever, you know, I, I'm seven, I'll turn 75 in about a month. And so I, as I tell my students, the one great advantage of old age, and I guess I have to acknowledge that term now, but the <laughs> one great advantage of old age is perspective. You look back and you see things that you didn't notice as you were living through them. And one of them is the realization of how little, you, although I'm not unhappy with the life I've lived, I have to say, It anything that was worth anything in my life was not me. It was the Lord, and the only contribution I ever made to it was I trusted Him. Mm. And to be honest, the Lord came through when I didn't trust Him most of the time, too. So I'm, you know, I mean, He always comes through, but but I didn't have to trust. I didn't have any control over what the Lord was going to do. Mm. And so, and we find that if we work through the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: You're and describing really? that. You're you're
0: describing that what we call sometimes the the meta narrative, God's narrative, yeah. uh, which is what we see in Scripture. And if we miss part of the Bible, we're missing part of that narrative, or or the part that we're trying to focus on. It doesn't under it isn't understandable as as well. You know, you mentioned uh, Israel and the Jews, and uh, we we believe there's a significant place that the Jews will have in those future prophetic events. That are fulfilled from the Old Testament. Well, we're we're almost out of time here, uh, Prof. Uh, Mm -hmm. If somebody were to get back into the Old Testament, uh, a couple books to start with, and why? A couple Old Testament books to start with, and why?
1: Well, the the obvious point I think is Genesis, because Genesis establishes the background to everything. Uh, We find in Genesis what kind of God we have his great creative power and his wisdom, his order, his structure, the idea that everything's divided in those nice six days of creation. We see an orderly God who operates and demonstrates his power. We also see his, um, his righteousness and requirements that he is the God who has is holy. And those who would certainly be with him and enjoy his benefits need to be holy as well. And, and, um, and then we see him delivering Abraham, I mean, delivering Abraham, too, but I'm thinking of Adam and Eve. And then we have all the way through, we see the foundation, which lays the basis for understanding everything else that's happening in Scripture. So I would say that is an awfully good place to start.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Uh, the We are used to reading the narratives of Scripture um, as Sunday school material for high grade school children. I recommend going back. Um, read the book of Ruth, for example, which is a beautiful story. But read it carefully and look at what it re- and say, what this is telling me? Don't uh, I, I remember listening to. Um, Actually, at one point, was associated with Calvary, so I won't name names. <laughs> but I was he had a, a series on uh, on the Book of Ruth, and he was showing us how Ruth illustrated the gospel. And I don't have any problem that it does. God of grace is clearly there, but that's not yeah. the message of Ruth. It wasn't yeah. written so that people could see how Jesus would, what it was going to like when Jesus comes and get, made salvation available to the Gentiles. It was. It's a book where, on the one hand, you find that Ruth and Boaz are the heroes of the book, sort of. But the central character of the book of Ruth is Naomi. And you say, why? And he's like, because she is the family of that, that particular strain of the tribe of Judah is going to die out with her until Ruth and Boaz have a child. In a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, one man and one woman did what was right. And what's the result of that? Well, we come to the end of the book and it says, well, Boaz has a son whose name is, and Ruth had a son named Obed. Obed has a son by the name of Jesse. Jesse has a son whose name is David. And all of this has just, just happened in history. And the answer is no, God was at work. But he was invisibly at work. There's no reference to reading of Scripture. There's no reference to prayer, even in the book. Well, huh. there is prayer in the book of Ruth. And I take it back. Every prayer in the book of Ruth is answered. But there's no. there are only two references to the Lord doing anything, specifically saying the Lord did something in the book of Ruth. No miracles. No prophets. And yet we see God working out his plan. And the book ends with, oh. You know, the last hmm. verse of the book of Judges says, which is when the book of Ruth is set. It says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. We get to the end of the book of Ruth and says, well, but during the time of the judges, God was providentially at work producing the king, who is the king, the man after God's own heart, who he becomes the model for all future kings of Israel and the ancestor of Jesus Christ, who will be the king of kings and will solve all the, the problems. And you say, oh, looks like God's got a plan and we can huh. see knowing the big picture we can look and say i see the smaller picture so i would say look at those narratives and say what does it what is it really saying mm-hmm. don't just uh, go yeah 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 <laughs> and, and, and like the book of ruth is not a romance about how an old man fell in love with a young girl uh, i would assume that boaz was probably significantly older than ruth it is about how a man and a woman saved the family and in the process of doing so provided the opportunity to deliver Israel from the time of lawlessness that they had fallen into, Mm -hmm. and then deliver the world from sin.
0: All right. God was at work.
1: Yeah, and we apply it to our own lives, and when we say, I don't see God doing anything in my life. I don't see him making any difference. And the answer Mm is, we just do live, we do what's right, and trust the Lord, and we have no idea what impact we'll have.
0: You bet. You bet. Well, we're, we're out of time. Yeah, and uh, I appreciate Prof. You sharing your insights and encourage <laughs> us all to get into, uh, into the into the Bible. Yeah, and well, I appreciate oh, you let
1: me ramble all over because I just <laughs> I, I go wild when I start thinking of these things. You bet. Well, we appreciate you, and I, it's our
0: prayer that, uh, and I'm talking to our listeners now. It's our prayer that our conversation uh, encourage you to have conversations with other people, and specifically about the Old Testament, and uh, get back into it. If you've not been in there in a long time, if we could help you do that at Calvary, we'd be delighted to do it. If you got a question for Prof, at the bottom of this email that you saw about Calvary Conversations today, there's a link that goes right to his bio on our Calvary website, so you can send him a message through that link there. Also use the other link at the bottom to send us any questions, comments, observations about Calvary Conversations, things you'd like to hear us talk about or address whether it's the four of us or individual conversations like I'm having with Prof. Williamson here. Well, Prof, thanks for joining us. And thanks Thank everyone you. for joining us today for a Calvary Conversations. Join us next week. The Lord bless you. bless you. Thank you for
1: joining us for this edition of Calvary Conversations, a service of Calvary University in Kansas City, Missouri. We invite you to participate in the conversation by contacting us through the Calvary University website, calvary.edu, or by calling us at 816-322-0110. Join us again next week for another Calvary Conversation.